Heavenly Father, we want to know the gift of God. Would you reveal the Son to us this morning? As we open your word, would you speak to us? Would we hear your invitation to come that we might drink of your living waters and enjoy the abundant life you are prepared for those who love you? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I am John, and I am the pastor here at Church of the Incarnation. Glad to be worshiping with you extra spiritual people this morning, who with one less hour of sleep and in pouring down rain, came to church out of love for your Savior. This is great. As the curtain is peeled back on the opening scene of today's gospel, we find out two things. One, that Jesus has entered Samaria. And you might not know this, but Samaria is hostile territory for a person like Jesus. So we can be prepared to hear a story about ethnicity and about boundary crossing. The second thing we find out about the setting is that it is at Jacob's well. And Jacob is a patriarch. He is someone that lived hundreds of years ago. And that means that the setting is the source of life for the people of God. It's a source of life that has sustained the people of God for hundreds of years. And so right off the bat, we have some questions like, what is the true source of life for Israel, God's people And will that source of life be strictly a source for Israel, or will it also overflow with life and give life even to Israel's enemies, who, at least up until now, haven't had the full story about who God is and what God is doing? I want to say a word at the beginning of this about um, something I talk about a lot, and that is kind of the collective nature of biblical salvation. A lot of us have a very individual kind of view of what salvation's like. So it's almost like Christ saved us on the cross, and it's almost like the lottery. And so like a big check just went out to a lot of individuals kind of randomly in the mail, right? And so you've got this like $100,000 check that you've cashed. And the big thing that you have in common with other people that have that same check is that, well, they have that same check, right? So it's very kind of individual away. It just kind of came to you. But the biblical image of salvation is very different. It would be more like this. God is really rich. God owns it all. And God has a family. And God has made a way for you to be in his family, right, through his son, Jesus, And the way you get rich is not randomly to get a check and kind of do your own thing. It's literally to be adopted into God's family and to share into the inheritance, right? So literally be saved as to belong to a family. And so if you come to this church for a bit, you'll notice that I'm always talking about this. What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean for us to be a family? 
And this morning, I want to tell you the other side of that. Because as much as salvation is collective, I want you to see that Jesus sees individuals. And if you were here last week, we saw Jesus sat down and he made time at night to spend time with a seeker named Nicodemus. And today, Jesus is going to meet a woman at a well. And he's going to make time for her. And he's going to see her. And he's going to know her. The fact that this woman is unnamed in the story perhaps underscores just how unimportant she was in the culture. Remember last week, Nicodemus had a name. He is a rich, powerful Jewish leader. And so we know his name. But all we know about this woman is that she is a Samaritan woman. And so that she doesn't have a name underscores her lack of importance in society. But that Jesus stops to talk with her. That he reveals the mystery of eternal life to her. That he offers himself the living water. That he reveals to her his true identity as Israel's Messiah. This means that she is of utmost importance to Jesus. And so friends, what I want you to know right off the bat from this story is that for Jesus, there are no unimportant people. I want you to know that Jesus sees you, and he knows your story, and he loves you. Jesus sees you. You're not just lost in the crowd. This is a story about boundary lines. I'm sure like most of you, I grew up knowing about boundary lines. I grew up in kind of a really interesting neighborhood, kind of just downriver from New Orleans. And my street was kind of like a suburban street with single family homes and you could ride your bike up and down. It was like super safe. And so it's kind of like growing up in the suburbs. But one street over was a little more urban. There were lots of duplexes, a little bit of prostitution, a little bit of drug dealing. You know, it had a different kind of feel. And then interestingly enough, to the other side of my house was a big patch of undeveloped land. It was just woods. It was like growing up in the country. I could go ride my bike on trails. And so I grew up in suburbia and in an urban setting and in the country all at once. It was really great. But we knew where the boundaries were. For instance, I could ride my bike up and down my street without any kind of fear. But we knew that you would never walk on the next street over. We might have driven it down a thousand times, but it wasn't a street that I felt safe to walk on. A while back, I was riding in a car uh, with a pastor friend of mine who's an African-American who grew up uh, not too far from here in North Atlanta. And we were riding in the North uh, Georgia mountains, and we were talking about different parts of Georgia, and she named Cumming, and she said, oh, Cumming. Growing up, we always knew that Cumming was racist place. And she said, even today, I would not go to coming uh, unless I had some friends with me or something. I just wouldn't uh, walk down the street there. Now, I don't know anything about coming. I don't know what it's like today. But we all know what it's like to grow up with this idea of boundaries and places where we can and cannot go. And Jesus understood the boundaries of his day. And that is why it is so shocking that he traveled through a place called Samaria. 
Samaria, it's Palestine in Jesus' day. It's a lot like Palestine today, right? You've got these ethnic lines of Jewish and Palestinian, and those, those dividing lines are strong, and sometimes uh, those dividing lines spill over into uh, bloodshed, right? And it's the same thing with Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day. And Jesus stops at a well, and he asks a Samaritan woman for a drink, and she's shocked. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? It is as if my friend has gone back in time and traveled to a whites-only 1950s restaurant and coming and has sat down at the dinner counter and asked for a glass of tea. To the waiter, this would have seemed audacious. Can you feel the discomfort? I'm uncomfortable talking about it. John must have felt uncomfortable describing the scene as he writes it. It's incredibly uncomfortable, and if you can't feel the discomfort, you don't understand the tension in the story. And Jesus responds to her this way. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And of course, she has no idea what Jesus is talking about, just like Nicodemus last week, right? Jesus is talking about a lot of things that folks are having trouble picking up. And so she says, okay, what are you talking about? You don't have a bucket. Where's your bucket? <laughs> this well is really deep. How are you going to get the water out of there? How are you going to give me water? And then Jesus tells her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. There's going to be three revelations that Jesus reveals to this woman. And this first one is that he is the source of life. Basically, what he's saying is, okay, yes, this well has sustained the people of God for centuries. But right now, you are sitting across from a much greater source of life. And someone who has the power to sustain life and to sustain life eternally for the people of God. What would it look like for you if you began to see Jesus as the source of life? In an agrarian society, in an arid climate in which Jesus lives in, this well would have been seen as the source of everything, right? You can't grow anything unless you have water. And so that well would have been seen as, as the source of flourishing. And I'm wondering what it would look like for you to see Jesus in this way. What would it look like for you to see him as your ultimate source of well-being? I grew up singing this old hymn, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And there's two stanzas I want to share with you. It says, oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me 
beneath the cleansing, healing flood. And then there's this other one that says, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. And whoever wrote this song seems to know what it's like to recognize Jesus as the source, simply trusting in Jesus for everything, right? I'm just every day gonna take from him all the life I need, all the rest and all the joy and all the peace. And friends, I wanna know Jesus like that. I want to trust in Jesus in that way. I want to know him as the source of life. I want to trust that my flourishing ultimately comes from him. And so I ask you, is it possible? Is it possible that Jesus is the living water, the, the one that has the source to sustain God's people? It's an interesting claim from Jesus. He's, he, he says it's a, it's a water that gives, you might call it eternal life. The same word means abundant, and it means both at the same time. So eternal means it has no end, and there's just a whole lot of it. And so it's this idea that he's gonna give you water but then somehow that water is gonna turn inside of you as springs of life that come gushing up out, outside of you so that suddenly your life becomes a life that's giving life to other people. Literally, you become a source of life for others. And again, like Nicodemus, she keeps asking questions that show that she doesn't exactly pick it all up. She says, okay, sir, well, give me this water so that I don't have to be thirsty anymore and so that I can stop coming to this well. What I like is that she doesn't exactly know what Jesus is talking about, but she still at the same time knows that Jesus has something to offer. And she knows that she's tired and that she's tired of being thirsty and she has enough hope and enough faith in Jesus to say, okay, give me what it is you have to offer. In the gospel, it's those who are at the ends of themselves and those who know that they're desperate for life that end up being the kinds of people that are able to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. And then Jesus responds to her and says, okay, go back, go back, get your husband, and then come back to me. And she answers, hey, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the husband that you're living with now is not indeed, I'm sorry, the man that you're living with now is not your husband. Can you imagine what a wow moment this must have been for her? You're sitting across from a perfect stranger, right? And then suddenly, this stranger, in a sense, reads your mail, knows your life, and is able to describe it in ways that are perhaps painfully described from a stranger. Who exactly is this woman at the well? 
We're calling her a woman at the well, but I would encourage you to give her a name. Think of someone you know like her. I met someone like her last night uh, at the Chambly Marta station. I was getting ready to hop on a train, and then this woman uh, struck up a conversation with me and my kids. She had taken the bus from Holy Catholic Church, which is actually right, right off Sam Luke Tucker, right next to my house, and she had ridden the bus to the train station. She was about to hop on the gold line going south to Midtown, where she lives. And it's very interesting that she just kind of described her story and just shared freely about how she had been married and she had some kids and somehow that marriage failed and she described some other boyfriend that she had gone to live with in Louisiana, where I'm from, and so we were talking about that. And it was very clear to me from the story that this person had had some true brokenness in the area of relationship, but she's also someone that's willing to take a train and a bus to go connect with Jesus. And I see that in this woman, right? She's got somewhat of a broken story, but there's this openness and this this hunger for keep, keep coming back. As I was reflecting on the gospel this week, I couldn't help but think of a friend, and I want to share a little bit just about my friend. I won't use her real name. I had the pleasure of living in a magical neighborhood in Los Angeles called Highland Park, and I was fortunate to live within a block of a community garden there. And there's not a lot of community gardens in Los Angeles, so it was a really great thing. And I was fortunate enough, with the help of another neighbor that had lived there a lot longer than us, to be able to rent a small little plot within that community garden. And of course, it was there that we were hopeful about teaching our kids a little bit about how to grow food, right, and where food comes from. But even more than that, we were hoping to get a chance to connect with more of our neighbors and to be a part of a community, And there was a woman there that we met. I'll call her Marta. Marta had grown up in Mexico, but had been living in Los Angeles for probably about 20 years. And this woman could grow some vegetables like you never seen. And so she would give us like the biggest squash ever. You know, it's like that one squash would like make two meals. Like we didn't know what to do with it, right? You're having to Google, what do I do with a big old squash? And she was just so sweet to us and just welcomed us in. Martha uh, isn't fluent in English, and I'm not exactly fluent in Spanish, so, you know, we got to know each other and our broken Spanish. She uh, had three kids with her husband uh, and had been living here for a while, and while her kids were still young, they divorced. I don't know the whole story of where that all went. She... had a daughter who was in her 20s, and about the the same time that her daughter got pregnant, she ended up becoming pregnant from a man that other folks in the neighborhood don't seem to know him, don't know who he is. And so suddenly, a 20-year-old girl is pregnant, and her mom is pregnant at the same time. And I'm friends with the daughter, and I can tell you for the daughter, this was not something she was very happy about, right? She didn't feel super good about how it was going down.
So the two boys, one's a nephew and one's an uncle, they're the same age. And they're the same age as my oldest daughters, Anna and Julia. And these boys are so much fun. And so we'd go to the garden and all of our kids would just play together. And I could show you on my phone, I've got years worth of birthday pictures. And every time one of them would have a birthday, we were always there and flanking them as Anna and Julia, right next to them as they go to blow out the cake. These people grew very dear to me. Like most undocumented people, Martha misses her mother, whom she hasn't seen for 20 years or so since she came to the United States. If you're undocumented, you can't leave your kids to go back to see your mom because then you're not going to be able to come back for your kids, right? Martha would often share with me how she was concerned for her son and how her son was hanging around with some of the wrong kinds of people and how she was worried for his life. Super tragic that he ended up losing his life not too many months ago. Martha is a dear friend who showed to us great care for our family. She showed love for our kids. She loves Jesus too, I know that. She did leave the church after divorce, but has since had a few good experiences with the Pentecostal church down the street. She's a beautiful person. But her life is also marked by tragedy, and it's marked by the breakdown of relationships. It's very likely that some of the sad things in her life are possible due to choices she has made. But I can tell you that those are also choices that she made in a system in which does not favor people like Marta. And I, want you, I wanted to share her story this morning because, at least as I imagine it, this woman at the well seems to be a lot like Marta. She is amazing and resilient and strong. She is gathering water. She is doing what she needs to do to take care of her family. And she's been through a lot and she has probably been wronged and misused and discarded, and yet she keeps going. And surprisingly, perhaps unlike so many of us, she has not grown cynical. She is still a person of hope. And it turns out that Jesus knows her story. To him, she is not some random stranger from a hostile people group but someone who is deeply seen and deeply known. And friends, I just want to say to you this morning, Jesus sees you and he knows your story and he even knows all the messy details that you would prefer to remain hidden and he's not afraid. And I want you to know that his holiness does not prevent him from coming near Notice, she might, be ashamed, she might live with shame, and others might shame her for the life that she lives, but Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with her. In fact, his divine holiness is what draws him near to her. He's the one that makes disciples out of enemies, out of enemies, Samaritan women. And if he can do that, he can make a disciple out of you. And he can pour living water into all of the parched places of your life. After Jesus so 
blatantly names her story, she is quick to change the subject. She starts talking about mountains, right? She's like, well, hey, uh, we worship on this mountain, and you guys worship on over there. So let's just kind of get your opinion, you know? Like, what do you think about this whole mountain thing? Basically saying, hey, my grandma said, we don't go to that church over there, right? We go to this church, and are you the people that go over there? Are you those people? What do you think? And Jesus goes there with her for a moment. In verse 22, I find it interesting. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know, but we Jews worship what we do know. Notice there's some real difference there, and Jesus doesn't shy away from naming the difference. And I think this is a great lesson for us in our relationships as we're having discussions along difference in religion, difference of race, difference of ethnicity, that Jesus isn't afraid to name the meaningful differences. But then he goes on to say, that there's a time coming in which what mountain should we worship on is not going to be a relevant question. We already know from chapter two, two chapters back, that Jesus has started referring to his body as the temple. And it turns out that when his body, the temple, is raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all people. And so what he wants them to know is that when the age of the Spirit comes, it's not going to be a big deal if it's on this mountain or on this mountain because the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh and on all people all around. He's basically saying, yes, <laughs> you, you'll get to worship God in the right way and right here in Samaria. Not because you Samaritans have had it right all along. That because this is what the Messiah has come to do. The Messiah has come to die and be raised from the dead so that the spirit could be poured out on all flesh. And so this is the second revelation that Jesus shares. That through his death and resurrection, the age of the spirit is going to come. And God's presence will be experienced in powerful ways throughout the world. And God's spirit is going to be for all people. All nations, every tribe and tongue are going to be filled with God's spirit to accomplish the mission of the Messiah. And so she says, yeah, okay, that age of the spirit, yeah, okay, the spirit thing. Well, when the Messiah comes, like he's going to explain everything to us, right? I believe the Messiah is coming, don't you? Okay, when he comes, he's going to clear this up. And then comes the third revelation about Christ in this passage. Jesus tells her, I am he. The one who is speaking to you is indeed the Messiah. Now, friends, this is big. It's big news. It's big because, one, Jesus is the Messiah. But it's also big because Jesus doesn't go around telling people, hey, I'm the Messiah. Like, he doesn't sit, you know, come up to a bar, sit next to someone and say, hey, by the way, I'm Jesus. Yeah, I'm, I'm the Messiah. No. If you read the Gospels, that doesn't happen. In fact, usually Jesus only acknowledges that he is the Messiah in private when it's only his closest followers present. 
So here in Samaria, it turns out that a woman is going to be the first to tell the other people of Samaria the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's almost like when Jesus is raised from the dead, right? And women are the first to testify. Again, here we see it's a Samaritan woman that is going to be the first to tell others in this region, Jesus is the Messiah. Come and meet the Messiah. And so this passage reveals not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but it reveals what kind of Messiah he is. A Jewish Messiah who is ready to give living waters of blessing, eternal life, even to Samaritan enemies. He is a Messiah that is making a way for people that would have been considered by the Jews to be, yes, theologically unorthodox and even half-breeds, and he's making a way for them to enter the truish worship. They will be filled with God's spirit. And so Jesus reveals that springs of living water are going to flow out from Judea and through Samaria into the ends of the earth. The imagination for all the water in this passage and for all the water in the last passage, again, starts back with the prophet Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 47, he's got this vision of the temple. And from the temple, water is gushing out of it. And water starts flowing out from the temple in every direction. And that water begins to give life to everyone and every creature with whom it comes in contact. And Jesus is here this morning. And he wants us to know he's the temple. And there's water flowing out of him. And he's inviting you to drink from that water. And he's saying, come, all who are thirsty, Come and drink from the waters of life. He's inviting you and he wants to give you water and he wants that water to well up in you and to flow and to flow out of you. So I invite you, come and drink. Amen.